1: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. Thank you guys for tuning in. As always, it's Tommy Vitor. My guest this week is Julia Yaffe. She is an excellent reporter at The Atlantic. She's a Russia expert. She's someone who can help us understand not who is in the room with Donnie Jr. and his meeting with the Russians, but why would Putin want to interfere in our elections in the first place? What is his motivation? What was their response? Will it actually deter him? Or do we need to worry going forward? She also talked about her experience after writing a profile about Melania Trump where she was actually viciously attacked by supporters of the Trump administration and what that experience was like and what it means for our ability to have a free press going forward. And, you know, what she's heard from Russian journalists who are worried about the level of access they've seen get reduced week over week, year over year under Vladimir Putin. So thanks for tuning in to Pod Save the World. Hope you guys enjoy the interview. Joining me on Pod Save the World this week is Julia Yaffe. Julia covers national security and foreign policy for The Atlantic. She's also worked as a Moscow-based correspondent for The New Yorker and for foreign policy, among others. She is a Russia expert who was actually born in Moscow. Her family emigrated into the United States in 1990 when she was seven. uh, She attended Princeton University, has an undergraduate degree with a major in history specializing in Soviet history. Did I credential you thoroughly enough here?
2: You missed my blood type.
1: Ooh, what is it? (laughs) Don't don't tell Vlad. We don't want to know. I don't know. Good.
2: He knows, probably.
1: Julie, thank you so much for doing this. You're a Russia expert, but you're also someone that, I don't know, every time I talk to you, I get a perspective that isn't the conventional wisdom that I see on on cable news and that I hear from people that are political observers who happen to be talking about Moscow because Russia is in the news. So thank you again for joining me. The first question I have for you Everyone seemed to believe that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. It seems to be the consensus view from the intelligence community and people in different parties. I feel like I hear a lot of different reasons about why. Was it because Putin liked Trump? Did he hate Hillary? Did he just want chaos in the U.S. generally? Do you have an opinion on this?
2: I do have an opinion on this. And my opinion is that it doesn't have to be one. It doesn't have to be one motive to the exclusion of others. Right. I also think that we haven't seen enough of the kind of intelligence to know exactly how it happened. But my feeling is, from what I've seen, is that it was several clans, several groups doing different things, not really knowing what the other necessarily was doing. For example, when we saw the hack of the DNC, the actually the Russian-born founder of CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity company that was brought in to look at it, Dmitry Alperovitch, he said that there were two groups, you know, Cozy Bear, Fancy Bear, we now know uh, about them, but they were representing different different factions within the Russian security services, and they were rooting around in the DNC servers not knowing about the other bear in there at the same time. They were duplicating each other's work, Mm -hmm. which says to me that the motives... You know, there was probably a signal given at the top. This is usually how it works. A so signal was given at the top, and then it trickled down the very intricate competitive bureaucracy that is Russia, I think, the and was interpreted in different ways by the bureaucracy. As for the signal that came from the top, I think that Vladimir Putin did not like Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and felt that she really did interfere in his country's internal politics that, you know, he said that she gave the signal for protesters to come out and protest him in the rigging of parliamentary elections in December of 2011 in Moscow. But I also think that all of this chaos, all of us, you know, losing faith in our system and its ability to, you know, deliver a just verdict, ability to withstand meddling that we don't know we don't trust our President. We don't trust maybe our intelligence community. We don't you know we, we're very suspicious of each other, all these hearings, all these leaks, all this chaos, this you know, I think from Russia it looks like we've gone insane and like we're <laughs> cannibalizing ourselves and kind of folding in on ourselves. That looks great if you know we're in, um, we're chasing our own tails that That's great for them, too, whether that was the initial motive. I think it doesn't hurt now, but I think there's, again, lots of things going on originally and lots of probably several motives going into it and several ways it was carried out. So I don't think it's as simple as Putin said, I say it's Hillary and do X, Y, and Z.
1: Right. The The image of these two baby bears bouncing around the DNC sort of conjured something I wrestle with in my own head, which is like, I could make a credible argument that Putin may have given this directive, but in some ways he just got lucky. If, if John Podesta had two-step verification, things probably turn out very differently.
2: Or, you know, I think when, when I've spoken to your former colleagues in the Obama administration, they were worried going, you know, into the election in the fall, they were worried there were that there were going to be other shoes that didn't drop, that there was other material that the Russians had right. gathered and passed to WikiLeaks and, you know, Guccifer and, dc leaks that they simply hadn't got around to dropping yet so we don't know what else they had or didn't have if it wasn't podesta it could have been some other some other not super tech savvy person somewhere in clinton land right that got you know bit by the i lost that metaphor bit by Sorry. the
1: bit, bit by the bear that works
0: yeah
2: but exactly right i mean by the bear.
1: podesta like you know those emails were embarrassing ultimately like not that big of a deal. The DNC hack, again, em- embarrassing, the woefully insufficient response by the FBI and the DNC. The fake news, that required us to go along with it and believe it uh, and be want to be manipulated It in some instances. So I guess it's sort of building up to the question... Do you think we're giving Putin what he wants by talking about Russia all the time? I've heard Russian journalists and activists say the West gives this guy too much credit for being a master strategist and a puppeteer. And really, the Kremlin is just as screwed up as your system. Stop giving him all this praise.
2: I tend to agree with that, but he also did accomplish something, right? So Mm -hmm. even with this contraption misfiring, in all these directions, even though it's a very inefficient system with a lot of infighting and a lot of corruption, they did manage to do something. They did, with our help, without our help, they did manage to do something really big. And they've managed to do it elsewhere in the region. They weren't successful in France, but they were successful elsewhere, for example, in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine. So a little chaos goes a long way with (laughs) Vladimir Putin. But here's the other thing I want to point out. Go back in time to last summer when the DNC emails were hacked. They created chaos at the Democratic National Convention. Mm-hmm. The, the burning people were livid. They were walking out, right? But then there were, you know, the dribble of, of leaks coming out all summer, all fall. There would be, you know, yet another batch of emails released. But usually, if you remember, Donald Trump wouldn't let them breathe on his own. Like, he was always overshadowing each and every leak it was always like the fifth story of that day because donald trump had insulted you know like um disabled nurses who (laughs) were helping burn victims um (laughs) survive cancer you know like he was doing his utmost to not let wikileaks help him yes and so how much of that was actually effective Uh, i think there were other things that we haven't really picked up on yet that were more effective it wasn't so much those email dumps, or the you know the press cooperating and looking through the emails and publishing, you know Porniera Tandon's correspondence. It was also things like knowing how to depress voter turnout with these stories that mm-hmm. just chipped away at the credibility of Hillary Clinton, or that, you know, you know, I had voters in Ohio telling me that they saw a story on Russia today. Uh, that Hillary Clinton had Parkinson's and yet managed to show no symptoms of of it. You know, why is somebody in Kent, Ohio, watching RT? I don't know. How were they able to—this, to me, is the crucial question. The Russians were not this good. A few years ago, they did not know what the DNC was. They certainly did not know who John Podesta was. They certainly didn't know what the DCCC was. Like, watching them lobby in Washington was hilarious. They Mm -hmm. did not know what they were doing. And then suddenly they know which districts to target in Florida. They know, you know, when to leak certain things. Like, how did they get so good? Right. And did they, was there somebody, I don't know, maybe there wasn't, but was there, you know, the analog of like a CIA spotter guiding the missile? That, to me, is the question, because the Russians... Maybe they got this good really fast, that's plausible. Maybe they had help.
1: Yeah, I mean, we asked Senator Warner about this, and it does seem like a big part of the Intel Committee's investigation is looking into whether there was support because they had this sort of precinct-by-precinct level of sophistication in terms of their targeting of voters with fake news. And and if that Mm -hmm. occurred, if that collusion occurred, that's big trouble for anybody involved, including Mm -hmm. our buddy Jared Kushner, who ran that shop and took a lot of credit for it.
2: Or it could be, you know, it might be... Uh, foot soldiers that go down for this and Mm -hmm. nobody in the top echelons of Trump world get in trouble because they lawyer up and with the foot soldiers who carried it out, you know, who carried it out in Florida, 17 or whatever, wherever they end up taking the fall.
1: Yeah. That'd be a very Washington conclusion to everything is some low level kid takes the fall. So the Washington Post did a long piece on the Obama administration's response to the hacking, and the quote everybody has seized on, including Donald Trump, was saying that the, someone, he or she said that we choked. We know Obama expelled 35 diplomats in response. We know they seized two Russian compounds in the U.S. that were used by Russia to spy on us. There were targeted sanctions There were reportedly some sort of cyber espionage. I asked this same question as Susan Rice. Do you think that that response was enough to deter Putin from doing this again. And do you agree with this unnamed official that Obama choked?
2: I think he choked to an extent, but I also think, you know, given, again, it's Monday morning quarterbacking, and I don't know if Obama officials I've spoken to after the fact, although they've been pretty candid about what they could have done better. They also didn't have great intelligence at the time, and you know, there was a lag between things when things happened and when they got reported, and when the Intelligence Committee reported them to the White House. And then there's the Obama administration's hyper deliberative approach to things. You know, I, I'm just envisioning this like deliberative professor trying to think about this really elaborate well-calibrated response to the kid who's um, throwing spitballs at him and, like, a couple happen to land and, like, break, like, one of the lenses in his glasses. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't think Putin is deterred. On the other hand, I don't know that he he has to do this again. He's already inflicted a lot of damage, again, because, in part because of our response, because of this five-alarm fire that we're dealing with in the press every day, in uh, politics, He certainly has done a lot of damage. He might not need to meddle again. Right. He's kind of, he's kind of, personally, I think the motive was regime change in the sense that he has always accused the U.S. often correctly of engaging in regime change and that eventually they were coming for him. He's not totally incorrect about that. I I think there's no love lost in the foreign policy and defense establishments, national security establishments in Washington towards Vladimir Putin. I think a lot of people would love to see him go. And he kind of showed like, you know, two can play at this game. You want to engage in regime change and put your thumb on the scale of elections in other countries, we can do it too. and We can do it in your backyard.
1: You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know, take a nap, read a book. I nah, wouldn't do a book. And I, listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah. But, uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, dot crookedworld. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to
2: negotiate.
1: Deep into the defense and intelligence worlds in Washington, as you know, there are a lot of folks who are very much have a Cold War mindset. And, you know, we had this weird reprieve during the first few years of the Obama administration with Dmitry Medvedev in power. And, you know, for all his flaws, he and Obama were able to connect and and talk about things from this lawyerly perspective and, and find common ground. And we always assumed and knew that Putin was pulling the strings behind the scenes. But when he decided to take power again, I definitely think it it marked a major chill in relations and things have gone far south since.
2: Definitely. And I think that this argument that, oh, you know, Medvedev wasn't a real president. And so that whole policy was a joke, which is what a lot of Russian liberals will say, just because they're so deeply stung and hurt by the fact that Medvedev didn't get a second term and that Putin went full-on revanche in 2012 when he came back. But that's not true. If Medvedev was doing that from 2008 to 2012, that was Vladimir Putin's policy. You know, he was experimenting with detente. He was putting his toes in the water, trying to figure out if he could let go of his reins a little bit, if, if this guy could be a worthy successor. And then Libya happened. And he felt that Medvedev let himself get duped by the West. Hmm. And he handed over a steadfast ally of of Moscow, Muammar Gaddafi, who was then brutally killed in the street. And, you know, he felt like, you know, do I have to do everything myself? Like, I can't ignore you while you take one UN Security Council vote. Hmm. And he felt like he had to come back. And now he's kind of, I think part of the reason he's so aggressive is because he kind of, He's also trapped he has he has no exit strategy except a coffin like there's no i don't know in, in moscow there's a lot of anxiety about what happens in 2024 when his fourth uh, presidential term is out like is he going to just amend the constitution is he going to cling to the bitter end is he going to have a successor and who will that be and will that change the rules of the game it's also a deeply unsteady regime that is constantly obsessing about its own collapse. So watching us collapse a little bit for, for a while is, you know, nice comic relief for the Russians.
1: <laughs> I'm glad we can entertain him. <laughs> uh, a quick aside on the uh, Obama's response. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people hear about us seizing two Russian compounds in the United States on U.S. soil that were used by Russians to spy on us, and they're confused. They wonder... Why would we allow them to have these compounds in the first place? Why would we let people spy on Americans? What do you know about these compounds? Is this part of the sort of normal unwritten rules that allow spy agencies to operate abroad, or were these different in
2: some way? I actually don't know a lot about these uh, these compounds, but I think that you know a lot of it is about diplomatic reciprocity, right? Like the Americans know that a lot of the Russians who are here as diplomats are not really diplomats and you know as long as we keep an eye on them it's all right because our guys are doing the same thing and they're not right. really state department but you know CIA or whatever in Moscow and so it's kind of um live monitor and let live and monitor right um and i th- and given that the russians overstepped those bounds and and you know implemented active measures in our campaign this is you know it got them where it hurts. That's why they're that's why they're so upset. Also, Russians love insisting on protocol and rules and so this kind of this really this really gets their goat when you violate some kind of a, you know arcane procedure. They they love fighting back on that.
0: <laughs> also look they
2: they were told, you know, the day the or the day before the sanctions dropped in December that this these would be the shortest lived American sanctions in history and Trump hasn't delivered for them, and they're getting impatient, and they can't—they let it slide at first, but now it's making them also look weak. It's making them look like, you know, they didn't retaliate, which, if you don't retaliate in Russia, it makes you look weak, and Mm -hmm. God knows Vladimir Putin does not like looking weak.
1: Yeah, that's true. In that way, you know, Putin is sort of like the voters in Ohio uh, who (laughs) have—Trump has not delivered for them. Just sort of like changing gears a little bit. You talked about the exit strategy for Putin. that it, it might just be a coffin. June, there were there were these nationwide anti-corruption protests across Russia. There were tens of thousands of very brave people at the streets. They were in all of eleven of Russia's time zones. They were organized by an opposition leader named Alexei Navalny, who was detained and sentenced to, I think, thirty days in jail. Putin has an eighty percent approval rating, I think, thanks probably in large part to running the media. What do you think the state of the opposition is in Russia? Is there any hope for people who would like to see a future for Russia that doesn't include Putin, but would like to see that future come in a democratic means?
2: This is a very complicated question, starting with Putin's approval rating, which has been shown by some Russian sociologists to be very skewed because of the very low response rates. Mm -hmm. So the people who don't agree with what's happening just tend to not respond because they don't want to stick out. They don't want to get in trouble but the people who are most jingoistic and most into what's happening are the ones who are most likely to respond. So it's kind of increasingly a self-selecting crowd that kind of just mirrors the echo chamber of Russian society. That's one. As for the protests, you know, there's this narrative in the U.S. that in its extreme version got us into Iraq, which is that if you just get rid of Putin democracy will flower because it's just the natural state of things. It's, um, it's not entropy and chaos, it's democracy. And everybody naturally, you know, it's like riding a bike. Everybody naturally knows how to do it, and they'll do it once, you know, once the tyrant is removed. But unfortunately, Russia is about 143 million Putins. And if you get rid of him, you know, look at what happened when uh, the Soviet system collapsed. You know, the, the top changed, the symbols changed, but the guts of, of that machine basically stayed the same. Mm-hmm. And so far, the, you know, there's, there's anger, there's dissatisfaction at the corruption, and things aren't going well economically. Not only has the ruble lost half its value, and prices have, for food, basic foodstuffs have just jumped. You know, the average salary is somewhere around three to 500 a month, probably closer to $300 a month. But Russians are also not used to, they're not Americans. They don't expect that life has to get better and better and better. They actually expect life to get worse and worse and worse. So they got a reprieve of like 10 years of things being great economically, and now they're back to you know, what they always should have been which is crap. Hmm. That's not necessarily going to get them out in the streets. And as for the opposition, it's hard. You know, people come out to these protests A lot of people get arrested and get a blot on their record or worse. You know, there's, we have, um, there's information now that the Kremlin is using facial recognition software on protesters. So even if you weren't arrested that day and you think you got away, they might come back for you afterwards and give you a long prison sentence. And that does scare people. It does work, you know, because most people don't want to fight their entire lives. They just want to live their lives Mm -hmm. and it's a lot easier not to fight. And, you know, Putin's not a bloody dictator, but he, you know, it's enough to put away a couple dozen people and make examples of them for the, for people not to come out. So they're, you know, given how things should be going, given how things are going, how corrupt things are, how bad things are economically, there should be even more people on the streets. The other thing about these protests is people come out for a couple hours and then they go home Mm -hmm. and life goes on like nothing ever happened. And uh, they don't get much, they don't get coverage in the state press. It's kind of, it's hard to see how they turn into anything. Right. It's something that we love to, it fits our notions that um, that people fighting for freedom will eventually get freedom and will make good use of freedom once they get it. But that's not always um, how the story goes, especially in Russia. So right now I don't see much hope of it. Really changing, and of you know, not may causing a revolution. Who knows? I yeah. might be wrong. To quote my friend Mike McFall, who was a buddy of yours, I believe uh-huh. he was um, ambassador to Russia under President Obama. Who he's a scholar of revolutions, and he said, you know, before they happen, revolutions always seem impossible, and after they happen, they always seem inevitable. So. Who knows? I'm a Russian Jewish girl. I'm naturally a pessimist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Maybe
1: Mike is right. Yeah, Look, I it's very easy to romanticize these things and imagine like breaking down a wall with a hammer or like whatever images we've all sort of remember from the long ago past. But the more recent past of, of revolutions that I've observed or worked on in Egypt where there was there was yes. no real opposition, but at least there were institutions that were treated with some trust like the military or. Like you were talking about Qaddafi. I mean, there was absolutely no opposition. There was no one to hand anything over to. Exactly. The international community fell on its face. I don't know why we would think that a country like Russia, that's infinitely more complicated than either of those places, that things would be easy somehow.
2: It's, It's not just that it's more complicated. It's just that these people are out of practice. They've, you know, Putin has been in power for 17 years. He has swept the field clean of any potential rivals. He has made every institution in Russia deeply personalized and dependent on his micromanaging. Everybody is out of practice, and as we know, democracy is hard work. You know, look at us—we have one of the—we have abysmal turnout rates. Mm-hmm. Our population is not super educated. Our political informational sphere is extremely polarized, and the facts are false. Well, Pray fall victim to that polarization. It's, it's really hard work, and if you're living somewhere in the provinces of Russia, and you just want to, you know, survive, you might not have time for that, and you don't have the, especially if you don't have the education for it, and you don't have the practice of it. It's, um, it's a muscle Russians used for nine years, between 1991 to
0: 2000. That
2: was it. Yeah. So, again, it's not necessarily natural for people. And in terms of us doing Putin's work for him, there's something about our system that makes us vulnerable, and the Russians knowingly or unknowingly exploited that. And if you look at, for example, what happened with France, you know, they they did something very similar. There was a guy they didn't like running, Macron. Mm -hmm. They hacked his emails, dumped them, but they dumped them too late. They dumped them a couple hours before the media blackout. You know, that's French law. I think what, 48 hours before the election, you have to stop political coverage. Right. I, it, actually, Russia has this too, this quiet period too. And A, the media cooperated, and everybody said, A, so the media cooperated, and B, the French don't have Fox News or Breitbart or Infowars. And that's true, but the French also don't have an electoral college. You know, the French mm-hmm. don't have super low turnout. The French don't have, haven't had Fox News for two or three decades, they don't have Iowa and New Hampshire primaries and these absurd, anachronistic institutions. Like, they they have a simple, pluralistic vote. So a lot of what the Russians did, you know, if we had a different system, might not have had such a um, disproportionate effect. For example, those 70,000 votes, let's say, you know, the Russians were able to Again, hypothetical, they were able to sw- keep like three hundred people, potential Hillary Clinton voters, keep them at home on Election Day, which, by the way, is on Tuesday. Everybody else in the world wor- votes on a on the weekend, which keeps wor- you know working people often away from the ballot. That's another thing. Yeah let's say they were able to keep those 300 Hillary Clinton voters at home in one tiny County in Wisconsin. And that because of the electoral college is magnified way out of proportion. Whereas if you didn't have those things, like in France, those 300 voters would be balanced out by people in Manhattan or San Francisco or DC or whatever. Right. So it's not just about Fox news and the media blackout law. It's also just the weird way our system is set up and, You know, like that it it produces these massive disproportionate effects on its own.
1: Look, I totally agree. We have we have we have structural challenges in our, in our system. We also have a weird sickness in our culture and our media right now where we'd rather believe the Russian government than an opposition party that we don't like. And a lot of that comes, like you said, from Fox News and Breitbart and Infowars, which, by the way, mm-hmm. are not necessarily institutions that that are merged organically. It's because a bunch of people with a point of view poured a ton of money into them and, and helped them buy and create this influence. And like Donald Trump wrote it all the way. So here we are. It's it's frightening and it makes me worry about all the sort of steps we could take paper ballots and cybersecurity measures and all this shit we talk about that we should be doing in wake before the next election. It's like this cultural problem, the societal problem. I don't know how we fix exactly. that between now and then.
2: Exactly. There's a part of this that Russia did for sure. Right. Yep. But there's a huge part of it that we did. Totally. Russia did not create Donald Trump. Russia did not create Steve Bannon. Russia didn't create Fox News and God bless his soul, Roger Ailes, you know, who has been slowly, slowly chipping or like fraying the fabric of American political life. Russia didn't create those things. And I worry that the focus and we need to focus on what Russia did and didn't do as a national security issue in order to, you know, take steps to secure our elections in 2018, 2020. We also need to do some soul-searching about what we did wrong and what what doesn't work about our system.
1: You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way.
0: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium-quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
2: Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts.
1: My last question for you is you wrote this profile of Melania Trump that she didn't love. But you were viciously attacked for it. like, unlike anything I've ever seen. There was harassment, anti-Semitism, like truly vile stuff. And at the time, you talked about how you were worried that that response to the piece showed a frightening future for the freedom of the press during the Trump administration. To quote you, you said, What happens if Donald Trump is elected? We've seen the way he bids his supporters to attack the media, his proposal to change libel laws to make it easier to sue journalists. Have your fears become a reality? And like, what is it like to have the president of the United States personally attacking you for doing your job for doing journalism. I mean, I just can't imagine being in that position.
2: I also can't imagine, you know, a year ago, not a year ago, <laughs> uh, like two years ago, Ben Jacobs, of the Guardian getting body slammed by a candidate for Congress and yeah. then still getting elected. Yeah. Something is, something is deeply wrong. And, Again, I blame people like Roger Ailes and Alex Jones and Steve Bannon for this. But my fears have, you know, have come true. That what happened there was Melania Trump didn't like that I found her illegitimate brother. And she didn't like that I said something not nice about her face creams infused with caviar. (laughs) And because of that, I got people ordering homicide cleanups to my apartment. Um, Thank God they had the wrong address. And my fear was what happens when they discover bad business deals, corruption, et cetera. And what I worry about is that we're about to enter the next phase that and this is what happened with journalists in Russia that eventually journalists started finding worse stuff. And look at all the stuff the press is digging up just in the last couple of weeks. This meeting with Donnie Jr. Mm-hmm. Like this stuff is getting serious, and it's really paralyzing him. Politically, he's wasting a ton of political capital on this, He's getting really frustrated. He keeps lashing out at the fake news, the hoaxes, etc. The supporters do as well. That has to go somewhere. That energy doesn't just fit in the universe. It has to go somewhere. And I worry that not that there's going to be violence, although there might be. I worry about the softer issues. And this is so we had. A couple weeks ago at the Aspen Ideas Festival, we brought in two Russian journalists who talked about how basically this is the last phase of the end of independent Russian journalism and how nobody can work anymore because all the independent outlets have been shut down or have been basically self-censored and censored to within an inch of their lives. And there's basically just no way to earn your daily bread as a journalist. And all the American audience members wanted to know is, aren't you afraid for your life? Aren't you afraid of getting killed or beaten up? And they're like, you're not listening to us. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere for us to work. There's no way for us to work and get paid and feed our families and put a roof over my head. And so we can't do our work. We have to do something else. And a lot of the most prominent journalists in Russia are now working in these weird, you know, historical exploration projects Mm -hmm. or they've moved into culture. And I worry that that might happen, too. And we're seeing that, you know, with some media outlets that I don't want to mention that make a show of fighting Trump but actually are not and aren't sufficiently protecting their reporters, aren't sufficiently fighting back for them publicly, but just letting their reporters twist in the wind when Trump comes after them because they're afraid for their access. Yep. They're afraid that they're not going to get the ratings or they're not going to get, uh, you know, a Trump surrogate on their shows or they're not going to get that interview. It's that, that I'm worried about. It's slow. It's insidious. And then before you know it, it's over and there's nowhere for you to work. And there's no one that will publish you because everybody just wants the interview.
1: I worry about that too. And I worry about the natural tension and competition between journalists Making it harder to take collective action to fight back against the things they do like off-camera briefings fewer briefings briefings with low-level hacks who lie to you all the time. I had a long conversation with Jeff Mason about this. It was a little contentious but I think you know he, he had a hard job as president of the White House Correspondents' Association but you know I do think they need to do better. So if people are listening right now like what do they need to do should they just pay for great journalism like what's the antidote for normal people.
2: uh, Well, you know, I want to say trust us, but also just, you know, be skeptical, active readers and definitely, you know, subscribe and pay for your subscriptions, but also just assume that we're in it for the right reasons, that um, we could be making a lot more money doing something else. But most of us have this weird thing where we want to find out the truth and be on the outside and, you know, be the fly on the wall. We're doing it to find out the truth. We're not doing it to pull one over on you and to bring Trump down just because we don't like him. But it's interesting about – I think you're absolutely right when, when you talk about the competition. It's the, it's the one thing that whenever I talk to Russian journalists and I ask them, what are we doing wrong? What should we do? That's the thing they point to. And they're like, stop competing over access. Access mm-hmm. is bullshit. It is. Access does not give you – you know, okay, you're going to get access and they'll lie to you or or what? Like, um,
1: Congrats, you got Kellyanne Conway on your Sunday show.
2: She's going
0: (laughs) to make a fool of herself. Or,
2: or, you know, access is the poison pill. And you guys should not cannibalize each other just because you want that extra bit of access. And what every Russian journalist said when there was that first, remember that first Trump press briefing Mm -hmm. when Jim Acosta of CNN was not allowed to ask his question and Trump just shut him down? Every Russian journalist I spoke to said either, A, the entire press corps in the room stands up and walks out, or people pick up the baton and ask Jim Acosta's question over and over and over again until they get an answer. Because you think, great, you got Jim Acosta out of the running, he'll answer your question, you could not be more wrong. You're next. So, stand up for I mean, I've just made a practice of anytime a journalist is getting pilloried, even if they made a mistake, just to voice public a reach out to them privately and offer you know my help because I know how horrible and isolating it feels, um, but to speak out publicly for them and to show support, even if they messed up, yep and especially if they didn't, just to show that you know. We all want to get the scoop first. We all want to get it first. But if they start picking us off one by one, it's not going to end well for any of us.
1: I agree with that. That is a great place to end. Julie, thank you so much for doing great work, being a great journalists, for dropping some Russian knowledge on us when we need to hear it. <laughs> and for playing hurt, you are not feeling 100% today, but you did this interview despite having a cold, and I will never forget That's, that.
2: So blame my rambling on, on having there a cold. There was no rambling. But it's <laughs> pleasure to talk to you It was Great
1: talking to you. All right. Have a good one.
2: All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye.